0: The Rock is Lit Vault.
1: Welcome to the Rocky's Lit Vault, where you can find outtakes from the regular episodes and extended episodes, as well as special features, behind-the-scenes peaks, and breaking news. Join me, Christy Alexander Halberg, for each enthralling episode, then migrate to the vault for Rocky's Lit Deep Cuts. In early October 2022, I had the great pleasure of interviewing Zena Shrek about her godfather, the avant-garde filmmaker Kenneth Anger, for Episode 6 of Rock is Lit, which features Zachary Lazar's rock novel Sway, a story that brings together the early Rolling Stones, members of the Manson family, and Kenneth Anger's film Invocation of My Demon Brother in a fictional setting. During my lengthy conversation with Zena, we ventured into a lot of unrelated territory that didn't make it into the episode, I saved these outtakes because I found them so fascinating, especially the segment in which she talked about her spiritual awakening that led to her becoming a practitioner and lineage holder of Tibetan Tantric Buddhism. I was touched that she would share such a personal journey with me and grateful to her for letting me share it with you here in the Rock is Lit Vault, which I had purposely posted on November 19th as a birthday gift to Zena. although her words and newfound friendship are really a gift to me. I hope you'll join me in wishing Zena a very happy birthday. Enjoy the interview, then listen to the full episode 6 wherever you get your podcast. Zina Schreck, formerly LeVay, is an interdisciplinary visual and musical artist based in Berlin, Germany. Raised within the Church of Satan, she came to international prominence early in life as the organization's high priestess and first public spokesperson, defending the church in the 1980s during the infamous media-fueled U.S. Satanic Panic. She resigned her position in 1990, severed ties with her father, Anton Levee, and renounced Satanism and Western occultism to pursue her own religious path which led to her becoming a practitioner and lineage holder of Tibetan tantric buddhism. Zena, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you very much, Christy. Thank you for inviting me.
1: <laughs> I'm thrilled you're here. Zena, I love this quote I found on your Facebook page. And here's the quote. If you have strength of character, you can use that as fuel to not only be a survivor but to transcend simply being a survivor. Use an internal alchemy to turn something rotten and horrible into gold. And I get the feeling that this is hard-won wisdom. <laughs> so to the extent you're comfortable, can you can you tell me a little bit about <laughs> your upbringing and experiences?
0: Yeah. yeah. It's funny because, as I mentioned just earlier today, I was talking with my half-sister Carla, and she um, she and I both, we still, you know, we're coming at, our life's experience from very different angles from very different perspectives. And yet we have a lot of overlap and we have a lot of shared common experiences. But the reason being is she's a decade older than me. So her, you know, her experience in the family started earlier. She knew my father much younger in life before he had become what he's notorious for now. Um, And then because she was older than me, she left home at a normal age when when young adults leave home, but I was still very small. So we both had the experience of being kind of like only children and then having some overlap in between. Mm -hmm. So she she and I were just talking today about um, all the things that we've had to deal with and, uh, you know, a lot of strife and a lot of threats and a lot of insanity both from within the family and outside, you know, lunatics and maybe sure. to deal with psychopaths. And, you know, whenever you have any kind of extreme religious, re, extreme religiosity of any type or or reaction thereto, you're going to get a lot of very uh, extreme types of people attracted to it. So... Obviously, the fallout on both of us is going to be a lifelong issue that we both need to deal with. And she was saying to me, sort of jokingly, because we were talking about other aspects of we we, we now we have to talk about things that come up about the Lavey estate, which we are both the the legal heirs to the Lavey estate. So anything that needs to be decided upon his intellectual property, our father's intellectual property, or his right to publicity, or any use of his image or things like that, we, we need to discuss it and, and make decisions about that. So, um, But something else came up that she was talking about earlier in, in my life, an, an ongoing issue, which I won't get into because it's too much of a digression. But anyway, the point being is she sort of jokingly said, you know, when I think about all the crap, You've had to deal with, and me Zina, has had to deal with, and all the things that I've had to overcome. She said, "I," she said, "It's no surprise that you've become a Buddhist." <laughs> and said and this is coming from someone who's still, you know basically a satanist <laughs> okay. and she said she said it's no surprise that you've become a buddhist i i can certainly understand the need to you know move to an entirely different country out of this country where she is still where you are in the u.s move out of the u.s you know become a buddhist and entirely change my life around and rebuild myself and uh, you know i had to thank her for that for that mm-hmm. understanding.
1: Yeah, that kind of acknowledgement would be very gratifying. Exactly, and uh, I think for both of us, having become
0: reunited after about a twenty-year you know twenty years of not speaking with each other, we've right. we've uh, we've been able to kind of help each other heal a lot, and I think it's been very beneficial for both of us. And, and as it turns out, now we are in fairly regular contact not only out of necessity, but because we've we've through both of our you know, we're both much older now and uh, through the decades of maturing since then, we've become pretty good friends now in the process of Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. So that's nice. Yeah, but the quote that you you uh, mentioned there about turning You know, an internal alchemy, turning something really rotten into gold. This is something that I've had to painstakingly work my way through, through decades. It's not an easy process, and it doesn't happen overnight. And you need patience to develop that. I have a very irreverent attitude about death. And, and uh, because I've worked around death so much. I mean, I, that's sort of my specialty in the Buddhist teachings, but I've also worked in mortuaries, and I've um, helped people through hospice. And I do mm. the Buddhist prayers during the transition from this life to the next for both animals and humans. I've actually taken vows that this is part of my, part of my um, commitment, part of my commitment to my teachers who have shared so much wisdom with me and have shared the teachings and given me instructions on how to practice in the correct way but more than anything which is the most precious thing of all more than anything they have really, I have three primary teachers and they have each really shown me a a level of compassion that I never knew before completely un, unattached, detached compassion that is purely selfless in the ways that they've helped train me and teach me. And that level of compassion, which is unparalleled to anything in secular society, this is Tibetan, Tibetans, I mean, real Tibetan teachers, masters. Um, they're on a different level, you know, for that reason. Uh, in terms of what you were talking about, turning something really rotten into gold. In that sense, I really have to give thanks to my my very precious teachers, the very venerable Trongu Rinpoche, his eminence Ayang Rinpoche, and my retreat master, Lama Kunga Dorje, who's here in uh, in Germany, and who has given me so many of the instructions on how to practice the the highest tantras, which is very, very uh, meaningful and profound, very profound, and these will be my lifelong commitments. These I've made vows to, so it's all tied into that pro- process of of internal alchemy and turning something, you know, that that you've experienced in life that has been traumatic or horrible into
1: into Diamonds and gold, you know, something very precious. I love what you said about your feelings about death. That you're not, you're reverent about it. You're not afraid of oh, it. Yes. I wish I had known you years ago when I lost my mother and husband to oh. cancer, and and really struggled for a very long time with that right. grief. And it, it it left me with sort of a fear of okay. death. That I, I'm still grappling okay. with. Yeah,
0: that's that's something a lot of people feel, and, and in fact, before I even began the Tibetan Buddhist training on the death practices per se, in Los Angeles, I used to work for mortuaries as a bereavement counselor, as a after as a after care bereavement counselor when, uh, for the family after a service or after somebody had died. Then. I would go in and do bereavement counseling for anybody who needed or wanted it. So the healing process, the, the grief process, is different for everybody. It can take a long time. It can even take decades. And it's really important to be very patient and to not uh, browbeat yourself for not getting over it. Uh, quickly enough and sometimes people think well shouldn't you even if it's an animal you know they think well you know you can get another dog can't you but people Mm. don't understand when you have strong connection to animals um as much as you do your human loved ones that it's like feeling like a part of your body has been suffered when an animal dies yes so it's just as much uh of the difficulty to deal with in terms of the grief process as with humans it's equal
1: well what i think i was leading up to with reading that quote is uh, the vibe that you give off that i'm picking up is one of real tranquility and in inner peace and i mean you you make people mm. comfortable talking to you and i just get the sense that that was hard one mm. and you know good for you for being in this place where you are right well, now. Well, thank
0: you very much for that, because this place where I am now, I'm, I'm honestly, this is no exaggeration, I'm in the most peaceful place I've ever been in my life, in my state of mind. And this means wherever you go, whether you're in the city, whether you're in the forest, whether you're in Germany or Cincinnati, wherever you go, if you can maintain this peaceful state of mind then it really doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to go to a holy site. The holy site is inside of you. And that's what you take where you go, and that's what's important to remember. And you can acquire that, you can attain that, you can develop that. It just takes practice and patience and knowing, you know, uh, obtaining instructions from, for, for how where to even begin most people don't know where to begin with a a simple meditation practice, for example. It doesn't need to be complicated. It just needs to be a time that is separated from the everyday hustle and bustle, and that is you're, you're beginning to create a sacred space for yourself. A sacred space in your mind. And it's a sacred space that you begin by establishing in your home but after many months of doing you know could be just a very simple practice first thing in the morning that establishes your day 5 minutes silent meditation with the right motivation and the you know the right thoughts going into the meditation it helps establish your day so that you're more grounded for whatever comes up in the day and then and then as time goes and you you establish this good habit, a you know beneficial habit of having a morning routine, then if something unexpected happens or if you're traveling or if you're not in your sacred space proper at the home then then you've established a healthy habit and you can take that healthy habit wherever you go and then then if you're in a hotel or if you're traveling or if you're on a plane you can do your meditation anywhere, anywhere you go but it's a question of establishing beneficial habits that help release the pain and suffering from your mind.
1: Yeah. Now, did you become a Buddhist before you moved to Germany no, or actually, after? That's an interesting question. I I became a I was
0: a practicing tantra I was a tantric practitioner in the Vedic which is the uh, Indian practices of tantra um in the in the lineage of Shakti, which is a female goddess of, of liberation. And then that was when I that was before I came to Berlin, but then after I came to Berlin and I had lost contact with my original guru, who was the person who initiated me in the Shakti practices. And I had lost contact with him for years actually, uh when I came to Berlin and settled in Berlin. Um, I continued my practices, but I reached a, uh, a a kind of glass ceiling, you could say, or a kind of level where I felt like, okay, I don't feel like I'm progressing. However, at the same time, simultaneously, I was also practicing invocations to the ancient to the ancient Egyptian god set. Now, the ancient Egyptian god set has unfortunately. This is something that's part of my private teachings, and I don't teach what I've learned from these practices and this this method of gnosis. Uh, I don't teach it to just everybody, because unfortunately, in the occult milieu, this god and the reality of this god has been very tainted and has been very twisted into occultists in the Western world, they like to perceive this God as just another synonym for Satan. And this is this is absolutely false, and it is based on a false interpretation by an early scholar who was imputing his own Christian beliefs onto this God, and it's not correct, it's not accurate. So, I went into my own meditative process incorporating what I knew from Tantra, and You could say uh, melding or yoking with this God set, who is a God that I had always felt I had had a strong connection with going all the way back to since I was a toddler, honestly. I felt that I had 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 had, uh, physical encounters with the spirit of this God, invisible spirit, non-visible spirit. So I thought, this is the God, this is the God who can guide me, this is the God who can lead me. So simultaneous to the tantric practices, I merged the tantric practices I was doing in insofar as the technique of how I was practicing. I merged those practices with the ancient Egyptian, which was actually, um, the the spells and the invocations are in in, uh, ancient Greek, but they've been translated into English enough so that I could memorize them and say them both, both in the, the ancient language as well as in English. And then I established a, a routine of working with these spells. And from that, I have to say my dreams have always been very vivid and very uh, distinct in the sense that I get very clear instructions and messages in my dreams. And so, as a result, over time, and, and I'm saying I'm, do, I'm doing this over 10 years, uh, over time, of the Setian practices, their the, the, the Setian Gnostic practices, then I began receiving messages in my dreams, which I know were direct transmissions from this God. And in fact, what he was directing me to was a particular lineage of Tantric Buddhism. And as a result of my merging my previous Vedic Tantric practices with the ancient Egyptian practices of Gnostic sentientism, merging those, I, the result was I would get dream oracles Dream Oracle work and, and messages, and that would give me clues. It would give me clues about what I needed to do for my own work, on my own mind and body, as well as where I needed to search outside of myself. So part of that was to go in the direction, go in the direction of, I won't say exactly how it was presented to me in the dream because I'm not, some I'm, I'm uh, on the advice of my own teachers, they say you shouldn't share specifics of the things that you've experienced, in, in whether they're right or wrong, or whether they were, you know, mistaken um, or or valid. You just shouldn't share the specifics. But but all I can say is I did follow the instructions, and it did lead me to the Buddhist practices, which I'm now. A lineage holder of, and that that's been a very long process of over th- thirty years, an over thirty years process. And within that process, I've been in retreat. If I were to consolidate and total up how many years that I've been in retreat, obviously not all together in one chunk, but I've taken a lot of solitary retreats, and um, solitary retreats where I've received instructions both from my internal guru, from my deity guru, which is this god set, and also from my actual gurus, which are the lamas who have instructed me. So the combination of all of these supportive supportive beings have, I, I genuinely feel so blessed that I am really on a very sure and and solid path now, and I, I need not seek anything else, I I am set for, I am set for life, I'm set for life, I'm the gods, I don't mean <laughs> it like that, but it is a funny, it is a funny play on words, <laughs> I'm, yeah, it works, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, uh, nobody needs to try to convince me to look for other spiritual paths, I've, I've found my way.
1: Did you have to train your mind to be able to receive messages in your dreams? Strangely, I already
0: had a a tendency for that. But what I did train my mind, okay. About, I mean, because I always had, like I said, very vivid dreams, and I would have prophetic dreams also, which were quite frightening at times because i I've always kept a dream diary. So I always documented my dreams, and then, and then, as it would turn out, I very often I would forget my dreams, and just you know, I, I documented my dreams just because I have very vivid dreams, and I thought they were interesting, or even if they were disturbing, I thought, okay, if it's disturbing, maybe there's something in my psyche I need to know about, or if it's disturbing, I need to go deeper and figure out what is in my subconscious, almost from a Jungian perspective. But although I didn't really, I didn't really. uh place I didn't really place so much importance on psychology but I I had looked into it enough to know you know that 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 is part of you know Freudian and Jungian psychology is the whole dream interpretation. Yes. But their but their ways of dream interpretation were very different from mine, which were just simply organic. I mean, I know I know myself best as you know yourself best, and anyone else should know their self best. And when you have a certain kind of dream and you're wondering what's the meaning behind this dream, you need to ask yourself that. You can't have somebody who doesn't know you tell you what the meaning behind your dream is based on what? Some some cultural factors that don't even play into your your conditioning in life, you know, your environment, your family, your religion. No, only you know. Only you know how to interpret your own dreams. So, yes, I was always very, uh, very tuned in to my dreams. And because of that, because I had this tendency of being able to... Um, recall my dreams very vividly and and I kept a dream journal and looking back at my dream journal I would be very surprised often that things that I had dreamed about then remarkably you know it's not like a detail-for-detail thing but but you could say the dream was a metaphor for the exact things that would happen Or sometimes it really was like the specific person doing the specific thing or something like that. So as a result of that, I thought, well, I need to know more about how to go deeper into this because my dreams are helping me. My dreams are trying to tell me something, even if that something isn't pleasant always, or even if that something is, in fact, really upsetting or disturbing. It's something I need to know. Whether it's something I'm I'm avoiding in my real life in my waking life, or whether it's something that I have pushed into my subconscious and don't want to remember things like that, then then the dreams yeah. were really trying to help me. And then, as a result of that, as you asked me, or well, your original question is, then yes, then I did learn how to uh, specifically do. Priming before you go to sleep, you prime your mind before you go to sleep um, with certain, with certain, uh, with certain rituals, certain habits, and certain uh, prayers that you do before you go to sleep to request messages. And this is true both in the in the ancient Egyptian Setian practices because Set is actually among many of his characteristics is he is the god of dreams and nightmares so in a sense uh he's the strongest god to help you in in the underworld of your dreams let's put it that way um but however there are very strong parallels to the tibetan buddhist practices of dream yoga so this this is why i think this god knew what he was doing in sending me to the only living teachers who are who have an unbroken generational lineage going back over thousand year over thousands of years going back to the Buddha Shakyamuni and then and then to tantric Buddhism um, to the more mystical teachings of Buddhism and more esoteric. This God knew that there are no current day practitioners of his practices and he needed to send me where is the next closest thing to find my own liberation and enlightenment which is with the living embodiments of the teachers that have such similarity to the ancient Egyptian practices and there are there are many similarities and I attribute that to most likely um, so many spiritual and mystical practitioners who were simultaneously traveling along the Silk Road in ancient times during, during uh, well, you could say not simultaneously, but through let's say 500 years or so, but all, all overlapping practices, spiritual practices, which I think informed each other and and had a kind of um, cross-pollination effect. So so I think that it's entirely likely and possible that ancient Egyptian practices, which found their way to ancient Greece, and then the ancient Greek philosophers and mystics, uh, then overlapped with the ancient Buddhists. And there was so much overlapping in that area of the world and in those centuries that I think that is the core of if I could say I opened my mind up, opening my mind up and uh, allowing my mind to be like a blank canvas to allow whatever I needed to know to head me in the right direction. I believe that connecting with the energy and and the consciousness and the sentience of this God, whether you believe in gods or not—that's irrelevant that to me. That's sort of like saying you don't believe in people that you've never met either. But just because you've never met them doesn't mean they don't exist, <laughs> or well, or just because you've never seen all the billions of people in the world doesn't mean they don't exist either. Um, right. And right. just because you haven't seen a god doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So. And there's many levels that gods and spiritual beings, there's many different levels that they exist. So, and then then the next logical question is people will say, well, are you a theist or are you an atheist or what are you exactly? And the answer is all and none and neither. (laughs) All and none and neither and both. You know, uh, gods exist and demons exist and all beings in the spirit world exist and yet on a certain level of understanding, they also are empty in their existence from their own side, and so are we. And the meaning of that is because do you really know that you exist from your own side? No. You know that you exist because of the way people react to you, respond to you, you know, their interaction with you that reinforces, that reinforces your sense of self, that reinforces your sense of being, your sense of existence. And this is what's very fascinating about spending a long time in solitary retreat. Because when you spend a long, long time in solitary retreat, and you do not have those mirrors of other beings around you, and you can be whatever you intrinsically are, it opens up all kinds of realization about the nature of reality.
1: What is the longest time you've spent in isolation? Uh, okay, the longest time that
0: I've spent at a time, although I've done it repeatedly many times, but the longest time i spent in isolation was three months.
1: But oh, my God.
0: You didn't see anybody. No, didn't speak to anybody, didn't see wow. anybody. Um, and I've done that more than once. Um, but then routinely, for many, many years, I took retreat twice a year that was six weeks twice a year. in the And I still do that now, except now I modify it to split it out throughout the year so that I have shorter retreats throughout the year. But my schedule used to be that in summer and winter I would take six weeks each. And the reason being, the reason why I would do it in summer and winter is because I found that was the easiest time to not have to be uh, responsible to others and and most people are on vacation or they're celebrating holidays and and they do, they really don't miss anything if you're not present or you're not or you just you're in communicado because they're dealing with family and they're you know uh, people are doing stuff during the summer and during the holidays so that's why it was the perfect time always to, for me to do my retreats and I wasn't missing out I didn't have any fear of missing out because because I was actually I was actually uh, happy to always have that opportunity to do what in my younger life my I felt my gut was leading me to. My gut, in my gut, I felt it in my gut that I had to, but I never had. I never had the time. I never had the opportunity. And I had so many responsibilities and I had so much stress and so many just insan- insanity and things in my life that prevented it. But then slowly and gradually. Um, yeah, I would say moving to Berlin afforded me the opportunity to then say, okay, enough, enough. And when I reached 40, actually, when I reached 40, that was about the time, or I would say 38, 39, 40, that was about the time that I was fed up with samsara, as they say. In Buddhism, they say you have to get really fed up with samsara, and I was, I had reached my point where I thought samsara is the illusory world is the world of discursive thoughts and pain and suffering and all of the things that we deal with, that we don't have the handle or the tools to know how to deal with. But that doesn't mean there there isn't a way to deal with it. And I need to find that way.
1: Do you think there's one season more than another where you're spiritually more attuned to... This is so fascinating. You should ask me this. Can you elaborate on that? The winter time is when I go when inward. When were you born? I'm a Scorpio. I was born November 3rd, 1969. Okay, so you're also
0: a Scorpio. Okay. This is very interesting, because yeah. when I was doing the interview on Friday for the, for the Murnau Project, that interviewer also asked me, what is my favorite season, or do I think that there's a, a mm. you know, more special season for, well, I can't remember how he phrased it. Anyway, he said, what is my favorite season? I said, right now. (laughs) Autumn is my favorite season, but also going into winter. And I was explaining, and I'll repeat it here to you, um, that I have this crazy theory, and it's not based on astrology, but it's based on when people are born. And it's totally anecdotal, because it's just something that I've observed all my life about pretty much everybody I've known, is that, we as humans, this is my, my uh, observation, that we as humans, we have a, uh, a kind of connection to the time that we were first introduced into this world. So wherever we were born is the time of year that is probably, for most people, but there are exceptions of course, but for most people the time of year that they favor. And for me, yeah. that's definitely true. And for you, it sounds like it's also true. Late late autumn is um, uh, going into winter. And uh, for example, other people who are born in summer, that's their favorite time of year. Or in spring, they I, I know plenty of people born in spring, and they can't wait for spring every year. They hate winter. They're eager to get to spring. And um, it's just anecdotal. But I've noticed that it seems to frequently come up that the time of year that you were first. And of course, this would be in reverse if you live in the Southern Hemisphere. This would be the opposite. But still, I'm talking about the season and the, the temperature and the climate and uh, what your first experience of this worldly existence was. The, the environmental and elemental and... Uh, different energy and temperature and things like that with the weather and like everything. I think it. I think. I think you're always drawn to. It. So to answer your question, is there a better time of year for spiritual practices? Well, interestingly, uh, well, I think there is something to that for each individual. For me, I find that my deepest. Uh, it's far easier for me to go into deeper and more profound spiritual experiences in the dark months far easier others other people find that it's easier in the warmer months or you know depending on what part of the world they live in but i can only speak for myself and then uh, interestingly uh there are times different times of the year for example in tibetan buddhism there are different times of the year where um Astrologically, it's better to practice certain types of practices, whether it's healing practices, or, or what I should say is not only to practice them, but to learn them for the first time. It could be more, it could be more beneficial, or it could be more, uh, actually, more strengthening, if you learn the practices at a particular time of year that coincides with the meaning of those practices, or, for example, during the month, the lunar month. Not not our, not our calendar month, but the lunar months. There are time, the different days of the month, that have a stronger, uh, stronger, more profound effect for different Buddhist deities. Now, in Tibetan Buddhism, there are many Buddhas. It's not just one Buddha. Uh, most people, when they think of Buddhism, they think of the one Buddha, Shakyamuni, and they think, and they they erroneously think that. What Buddhists do is kind of what Christians do, and they worship that Buddha in the same way that Christians worship Jesus. But that's false. That's not wrong. Um, Buddha Shakyamuni is an example to us that enlightenment can be attained within your own lifetime, and that you don't need to go to heaven. You don't need to go somewhere else. That omniscience, enlightenment, and liberation, and what does that mean exactly? liberation from pain and suffering, Um, enlightenment is a state of mind, and that this can be attained in one lifetime if one is very diligent, and if one believes that others before us have attained that, not just Buddha Shakyamuni, but countless other spiritual practitioners, not only of Buddhism either, of many different religious denominations and faiths, um, and and philosophical, the ancient Greeks, for example, um, there there are examples of many different mystics, different kinds of mystics and esoteric practitioners who have attained enlightenment. And that it's not a question of going away somewhere after you die to a mythical place like a heaven or hell, but it is truly understanding the mind. And understanding the power of the mind, understanding how the mind functions, understanding how the mind creates the reality around us, and ultimately understanding how, if you can free your mind, that is how. That is the, that is one of the steps, anyway, in, in terms of how to attain enlightenment and become a Buddha. What it means to become a Buddha.
1: That sounds much more empowering than waiting for it to come later. Extremely
0: empowering, and in case you don't manage to—I mean, that's a pretty tall order, and it's pretty hard to do in one lifetime. But in case you don't manage that, this is what the death practices are about, and this is what I—this is what one of my uh, most cherished practices is about, and what I share with others, because then. Depending on your state of mind at the time of your death, then that determines where your karma throws you into the next life, or if it's a next life. And there's many different ways to go with that. It's not just an either-or: go to heaven or hell. It's not like that. There's many different many different things that can transpire after bodily death, because we're talking about what happens to the consciousness. Consciousness continues. Perception. The perception of consciousness continues in a very similar way as when we're having dreams. We're experiencing. We're experiencing in our dreams, but our body is still. Our body's not moving around, but we're moving around in our dreams. And we're experiencing all kinds of things in our dreams, regardless of the fact whether our body is moving or asleep or whatever. And the same thing with being in a coma or fainting all these different states of unconscious doesn't mean that consciousness doesn't exist. Of course, of course it still exists. And just because your consciousness detaches from your body doesn't mean it can't perceive, continues to perceive. And that is what the training, why the training and how to understand death so that you're not frightened of it, so that you know how to die peacefully and joyfully and not be frightened because you know what to anticipate and and understanding what to anticipate and understanding how to how to attain mastery over your mind through that process eliminates the fear actually
1: it seems to me that if you could accept that and practice that then it would take away this terrible fear that so many of us myself included have of dying
0: absolutely course and that's natural that's normal yeah it's the unknown of course we're frightened of the unknown that's normal that's natural but once we understand and this is of course from from i'm talking about from masters of these techniques who have been able to have such deep states of meditation that they can go into alternate realities that they can remember past lives and when i say past lives i should more accurately say past existences because um, it's a kind of romantic notion that you know we just continue life after life always as human but existences can be all different sorts of existences can be manifest existences or non-manifest existences all sorts of things so such a master can have deep deep states of understanding through deep states of meditation, of realization and understanding, um, on such a level that they do recall not only the life pre- prior to the current one, but the in-between time, the in-between lives, which is known as a, a transitional um, stage, stage, stage called the bardo, the bardo of dying. In Tibetan it's called bardo, which means an intermediate state. So between, corp- between bodily death, when we stop breathing, and all, of, all of our organs stop functioning, until the consciousness reattaches and, uh, you know, uh, uh, connects to atta- attaining a new... Uh, form, whether it's a material form or a new existence in non-material form, that in-between time is known as as an intermediate intermediate state, the Bordeaux state, and that is a 49-day period of time, generally speaking, although it can be less or more, but generally speaking it's about seven weeks or 49 days, in which the consciousness, if it's an untrained consciousness, would be grasping and swirling around in confusion, perhaps experiencing phenomena that causes the consciousness to not even be certain whether it's actually dead or not, and a lot of confusion and different, there's many different stages that it goes through, um, which is a long complicated teaching in and of itself, but just to give in a nutshell an idea that the, the 49 days in between one existence from the next or one we call it in Tibetan uncontrollable recurring rebirth until the next uncontrollable recurring rebirth um, that is a window of opportunity where if you can train your mind in your waking living state now currently you can actually train your mind to recognize certain things and part of that practice is learning more more about how to master your mind through your dreams because you use the dreams as a kind of rehearsal and can can i develop lucidity in my dreams lucidity in my dreams enough so that when something is happening in my dream i can say you know what i know i'm dreaming and stop it now just stop it and stay calm And learning how to meditate in your dreams is very important. It's a rehearsal for death and for the after-death. Because that is what will help the consciousness to not be reborn in a less fortunate existence than than you've got now. You're in a very fortunate existence right now, having been born as a human having human cognizance that can even listen and comprehend the conversation that we're having now, human consciousness has that ability. And this is a very fortunate birth, a very fortunate rebirth, and a very rare opportunity. People don't understand how rare it is to be reborn in human form. And unfortunately, because of that ignorance and because of that naivete or unknowing, People do a lot of harmful things, and that's why the world is in the state that it's in. Is because people do not understand that the effects of their behaviors have long-reaching consequences, whether immediately manifest or over really long-term manifest.
1: I hope you enjoyed this outtake from my interview with Zena Shrek, originally conducted in early October 2022 for the episode of Rock Is Lit on Zachary Lazar's rock novel *Sway*, which you can listen to wherever you get your podcast. Thank you, Zena, for your time, generosity of spirit, and words of wisdom. Happy birthday! I I hear a puppy. In the background.
0: <laughs> And I'm assuming that's Wyatt.
1: That is Mr. Wyatt, yes. Mr. Wyatt has heard of you and wants to meet you, and he's probably in the hall going, I want to talk to Miss Cena." Yeah. <laughs> and I want to talk to Mr. Wyatt.
0: <laughs> Rock is lit.